I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the line with us today from Sydney, Australia, is Tom Champion, Senior Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the nature of trust in the market today. Welcome, Tom. Hi, happy to be here. So, Tom, let's start with one of the ironies in the marketplace. Trust is on decline as a dynamic in the market at a time when trust is one of the most important factors in consumer decisioning. Why is that true? When we look at so many studies out there, I mean, trust is a topic which um, so many different organizations are researching, so many different um, leaders are talking about. Um, so when we look at all these studies, one of those common themes that you do find is that trust is on the decline. So one key data point out there is on the perception of trust for CEOs. And they've seen that CEOs have never felt more worried about trust. So post-GFC, around 69% of CEOs have described that trust is one of the biggest issues, compared to pre-GFC, where it was around 12%. So a really big gap there. And I think one part of that is how much we've been able to see the link to financial performance and poor customer trust. So studies have shown that poor perception of data, for example, misusing data and poor trust coming from from that and decreased retention by about 18% within a year can make customers spend less around 15% in one year. And also makes customers more likely to dissuade others using that uh, organization. At this time, there's less trust in institutions than, than ever before. And that could be a comment about governments, NGOs, brands. There could be all sorts of meaning to that word. And we are in a kind of a turbulent political world where there is a lack of trust in sort of the, the nature of governments. Let's just use that as the example. How much is that playing out in markets where there's a natural cynicism or natural distrust of things that are institutions like brands? And that's just sort of an overhang that all brands have to inherit or have to consider as part of the consumer thought process. So we definitely see that across all industries, across all geographies, there is this decline taking place. And I think a huge part of that is the age of the customer. So customers who have never been more informed, who no longer need to look at brand messaging and market promises at face value, they have their mobile devices. They can very quickly check for themselves if what this organization is promising is true. They can look at review sites who are very sophisticated now at aggregating reviews, providing uh, numbers, providing more qualitative comments, helping customers engage with each other about a service. So customers just have a lot higher expectations about what about honesty, which is affecting their consumer decisions and behavior as well. So one of the discussions we've had before was that there's a sort of a watchdog uh, role that's being played by the customer right now, to your point, which is customers are sufficiently cynical when someone makes a a comment about sort of, let's say, their social compact they make with different charities, what have you, or they make promises about their product, what's in their product or what the product does, there's an inherent skepticism. And so you have sort of this watchdog effect where people check on it. And to your point, if there's any 
chinks in the armor, they will both themselves act on it and then amplify that same level of sort of disappointment in the social channels. There's a network effect that comes out of that. Is that part of what's playing out here? Yeah, absolutely, which is why we talk more about how important it is for trust to appear at different points in the customer journey at different interactions. Because what we see is that, for example, if you're trying to demonstrate your integrity as a brand, um, it's not enough anymore just to have a really passive association with, with a foundation, with a charity. That doesn't have the, the power it once had. So now it is important to, to the customer to feel that when they're interacting so that trust can be built, can be sustained at several points uh, throughout the journey and not just expecting customers to interpret how trustworthy the brand is um, themselves. Yeah, and playing off a little bit of that, Tom, I mean, what does trust really mean today for you know, organizations and their relationships with their customers? Well, I think it, it's really critical. We see that when you think of how important loyalty is with any kind of relationship, I'm not talking about business, I'm talking about you know, mankind, humankind, mm-hmm. um, and that obviously translates to the world of business as well. But in such a competitive time when uh, where there's so many uh, lower barriers to switch and so much choice out there, like trust becomes much less of uh, a nice thing to promise and much more of something where if you're getting it right, if you actually think about those drivers of trust and acting on them, the real way to, to uh, be distinctive. It's kind of funny with discussions we've had with different guests, we talked about loyalty programs and the fact that they are probably more transactional seeking the next, next purchase versus sort of building up affinity or even going one step further beyond affinity, but actually building trust. And in a world where you have hyper adoption, but it's sort of evil stepbrother hyper abandonment, trust begins to be the necessary currency to sort of keep the customers believing in a brand or believing in a product as they transact through the journeys or they transact, you know, through multiple purchases. But your, but your opening comment is that natural trust is eroding, meaning the natural loyalties that, that companies can really count on is in decline. That's right. So that's why we see our research has shown how important the drivers of trust are. So our body of research on trust points out that the drivers are transparency, integrity, competence. So when you're able to break down the levers of trust in this more nuanced way, it helps you diagnose where you're weakest um, so you can actually do something about it and get a bit more serious about how trust appears across the customer journey as opposed to just being something that you know you put in your annual report and uh, say to the media at any time a crisis happens. Yeah, and I think it would be helpful maybe, Tom, if you could just go through those drivers one by one. So our body of research has shown that the three drivers of trust are transparency, integrity, But there's a problem there in that leaders can really misunderstand the the true nature of these, what lies beneath these, and really be led astray by some of the conventional understandings of these topics. For example, transparency. We see that all the time that organizations, when there's been some kind of crisis, when uh, organizations have been caught acting in a duplicitous way, that's kind of their default response. So it's be more transparent. But they oftentimes forget 
what this means in terms of a customer experience. So, so often you'll see digital uh, experiences, you'll see websites, you'll see forms, and their, their interpretation of transparency is to overload it with disclaimers, overload it with text, with this idea that by putting all possible information available in the customer's space at every time is being transparent. Yeah, it's almost like transparency equals sort of the small text that sits behind the contract just so that they can actually argue that it was there and there's natural compliance to it. Or it sort of manifests itself as an apology tour, which is we weren't transparent, but now we'll divulge what we should have divulged before. So transparency, even though it's sort of a key lever of trust, the way it plays itself out is on a rather defensive measure. Exactly. It's all about protection, really. It's not a customer-facing approach to transparency. I mean, we looked at one, a few banks, and their uh, journey to buy certain financial products, credit cards. On one of the websites, it was around 15% content and around 85% disclaimers. And you can see where they were coming from when they were trying to be transparent and upfront when it came to information. But ultimately, it just has an ironic effect because no one's going to read those disclaimers, so they'll they'll be even less protected than before. And it really points out to how important usability is when it comes to trust, which is something people overlook. You mean the idea that that information that will never be read in the format you described it it has to be consumed for trust to be built out. It just can't exist. There has to be a consumption and internalization, some sort of an explicit agreement between the company and the customer that is done because someone has been transparent. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and so you can see why this has occurred, and a lot of it comes down to siloed ways of working. So I can imagine in that case you had the legal team and you had the, the UX team and probably not working together. They weren't thinking about where do we put the right level of information at the right time throughout the whole journey. So it's more, let's put all information there at all times for a, a very diluted experience that doesn't really help trust at all. What about a good example of transparency? One example is from a health care provider, HCS in Australia. And their form, it's more of a conversation. So they don't try to hide jargon with really roundabout ways of describing what they mean or having little hint texts which overload the, the customer with explanations. They are honest about the terms they use and also educate the customer about these terms in a very simple way. So they've, they've incorporated a content strategy to raise the literacy of customers as they're going through something as transactional as a form. So really conscious So how are you advising organizations how to balance that sort of transparency with the regulatory obligations that they have? Well, when you think about regulation, if you take a really uh, cynical view, then they just sound like the devil. But if you take a more positive view, then they, are, they do serve a purpose and they can help reassure customers. So at their heart, it's all about protection, and customers want to feel protected. They want to feel safe, especially when they're going through high-stakes interactions when it comes to their money, lending, banking, that kind of thing. So 
how we advise organizations is to think more about that journey and think more about the emotional state of the customer as they're entering these interactions. So they probably have a low level of trust in their bank and they want to feel reassured. So we see organizations, for example, when you're about to make uh, that critical step, you're about to do the approvals, they won't hide the disclaimers, they won't um, tuck them away in you know, accordions and uh, right at the bottom. Instead, they'll, they'll give it the same level of design treatment, the same content strategy, the same tone of voice. So it's a core part of the experience, and the customer can actually feel safe, feel protected, feel informed by the end of the experience. Or it even comes down to the different artifacts. So something like the disclaimer document, the terms and conditions document. Typically, they they get hidden away in some PDF that looks like it was created in 1995. But more and more, we're seeing organizations give that a polished design treatment, customer-friendly language, uh, showing, explaining things with diagrams. So just showing they've got nothing to hide because customers can can really appreciate um, feel that protection and feeling informed and be very different as well, different experience when you're getting that right, while your competitors are still treating it as a bolt-on, tucked away thing. And let's just stay with banking for a second, Tom. So in our CX index, what we found was the relationship equity between the bank and the customer has declined over the years. I mean, part of the business model of banks was once I capture you as a customer in your early days or checking our savings account, you'll stay with me through the life stages. And I think what we're finding in the marketplace is that that's not true. We're finding in the CX index is there's a true gap between the emotional connection between the customer and the bank. So one way to look at this from the context of trust is that trust was perceived to be durable, meaning once it was formed early in that banking experience, it stayed with them in some cases for a lifetime because it was a local bank. As we look at more sort of the prove-it world that we are with customers, where customers are asking companies to prove it experience by experience, is trust becoming transactional? I would say that it is definitely a whole new world. And that idea of the time when trust was built and then kept that way, I don't think that's the case anymore. It's constantly being built or lost, even with the customer interacting with the organization. So any interaction is a chance to build trust, to sustain it, or to lose it, which happens a lot, which is why we're seeing organizations embed ways to build trust in different ways throughout the journey. So if we look at something like integrity, which is another driver of trust, so often organizations just try to uh, form partnerships with foundations, with charities, and then tell the customer about it. They just do it through just campaigns and things like that. Instead of having it as something that customer can actually feel when they're interacting with an organization. So one example uh, in Australia is from a bank called Bendigo Bank, which is also one of the uh, CX index leaders in Australia. And they do something called uh, value-based cards, value-based credit cards. And what this is, is you can attach your card to a cause, for example, uh, animal welfare, animal rights. And so you'll get a personalized card, so a card with a, with a dog or a cat on it. 
but then also when you use that card to make a transaction, it'll make a small donation to a certain cause. So it's really changing the point of sale, and the customer is also feeling the difference when they're using this card. They can feel that integrity as opposed to just being told about it uh, every now and then. And that's really connecting the, you know, we've talked about this in other episodes, right, but that brand promise with the customer experience so that they're sort of maybe literally putting their money where their mouth is and committing um, and baking it into their operations. Like you can, you know, support this cause, we support this cause and connecting with their customers that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's key. It's key to think about the operations. It's key to really making these systemic changes because that third driver of trust, one of the other key drivers of trust, competence, that really connects to how important consistency is to build trust. You only have to think about, you know, they need to have one bad interaction with an organization for that to be uh, stuck on your mind for a long time, which can really impair trust. So in, to have that more consistent experience, it's so important to look into those operations, look at the root causes, so that the experience the customer feels, no matter the channel, there's unity there, and also you're able to to give more realistic expectations as well, as simple as something like time frame. So one organization we spoke to found that they just couldn't tell customers, the call center could not tell customers realistic time frame on when their, uh, for example, this example of insurance, they couldn't tell them when their application would be processed because there was just no connectivity between the call center and all the other different teams necessary to process the application. But they really needed to fix things like policies, fix things like training, fix things like internal communication channels, so that this consistency of timing, consistency of messaging could be brought through to the customer. So it's so true that you need to look a lot deeper into the operation as opposed to just um, telling customers your trust, which is what a lot of organizations do. I'm going to play off your comment about competence for a second. Some brands, in terms of describing their competence, will describe it as based upon the durability of the firm. We were established in 19-something or other. We've been in business for this long, as if being there for a period of time is the basis of trust. And that argument sort of is a, is a way to counter the digital disruptors who have been in the market, obviously, for a much shorter period of time, so therefore they should be trusted less. But actually what we found was that's not true, is that because trust is becoming transactional, some of the digital disruptors that can deliver and from a you know, constant standpoint against those experiences are gaining as much trust as some of those have been established for 50 or even 100 years. How do we explain that? How do we understand you know, brands that are levering on that durability? Oh, absolutely. And I think you see that much when when uh, organizations want to establish that they're trusted they go straight to number of years in operation they go straight to you know, the year that they were founded as if that's meant to be enough proof for organizations to act because as you point out you look at you look at uber you look at airbnb these organizations are dependent on customer trust to survive and they're obviously doing well and they're you know, 10 years old, less than 10 years old. So that's something we see so often, and it all connects 
to how trucks cannot be packed. Yeah, and I guess the other cautionary tale is that in some cases, when you think about trust and just sort of being very an energetic thing, people might think of it as a way to describe or a way to focus their advertising. But what we've learned is the advertising channel is the least trusted channel. Um, and so where marketers spend the vast majority of their money is an area where there's least natural trust that has formed. So is, is part of the advice as we sort of animate trust is don't place it in the advertising sort of, I promise you these things, and going back to what Jen said, is to actually go through the walk-the-walk walk game of delivering it through the experiences. Absolutely. I think that advertising can definitely play a role, but we need to live up to that at every point uh, throughout the journey. So I think we see a lot of really interesting approaches to establishing trust through advertising. So one organization that is doing this is a life insurance organization here in Australia. And they're really tapping into how mistrusted insurance can be uh, in the country and how much customers don't believe a lot of the common messaging around insurance that you see, which is get peace of mind and protect your loved ones. But that, that's very saturated. So their approach is saying that you won't love us, you won't hate us. But they're just being very honest and really trying to set expectations to match the customer's perception. There's also a payment firm here called BPay, and their campaign now is around fall in, fall in like with your bills. So don't fall in love with your bills, fall in like with your bills. Just being very conscious that you'll probably never love paying bills, but you could like it. So they're really trying to match what the perception is from the customer, but then the onus comes on them to live up to that throughout the interaction. So whenever you are doing it on whatever channel, it still needs to be reflected from that initial advertising. So it's not just advertising, but advertising certainly helps. Yeah, and I... I think one of the things that you just hit on in that uh, VPay example is understanding your customer is so core to building that trust, right? So knowing, I mean, it seems simple enough that nobody likes to pay bills, but sometimes organizations forget that the human nature of either marketing or speaking or, you know, writing to humans, that it's key in knowing your customer and understanding what their needs, likes, wants are. Um, to build that relationship, to build that trust? Yes, customers enter interactions fully charged. They've got perceptions that maybe have been influenced by the media. Maybe they've been influenced by their past interactions. They've been influenced by what their family thinks of this whole industry. There are so many things that go into that. So organizations really need to understand what is that context of the emotion You know, one would think that trust is naturally a human-to-human connection and people would be naturally more distrustful of digital connections. But we're finding is that may not be true using wealth management as an example with robo-advisors. Is it true that people trust robo-advisors as much as they trust their advisor? So people trust people. And so there's all kinds of studies that show that, you know, um, something like healthcare is not a very trusted industry, but nurses, doctors, pharmacists, some of the most trusted professions. So we certainly see that separation there. 
and also how much perception matters with all of this. So if your robo-advisor is coming across as um, human and you can connect to them, you can relate to them, then I think then that is just as trustworthy as a real-life human being. I think part of what you've been saying, Tom, is that trust really is an operational competency. It's not a brand message. It's not collateral. It's what I do every single day in terms of transparency, integrity, competences. It, it is my business. And it's not just because it's part of an emotional connection. It is a significant lever to financial performance. So as you think of companies positioning towards trust, what, what does it mean to a company to use trust as a competitive weapon? I think trust is too high stakes now to leave it to conventional wisdom. And we know too much about the drivers of trust. So the, the competitors who wield this, who use this as a competitive weapon, they'll be able to get ahead because it, we're at the point where you can diagnose where you're weak on trust, decide to what extent trust matters to you, and then infuse that across the journey and make the systemic changes to match. So the companies that do that will really prosper. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. We appreciate it. I trust you had a good time, Tom. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.